This is a podcast from meow.net. Meow! Connecting people working for cultural democracy in Europe and America, this is a culture of possibility. With Arlene Goldbard and Francois Matarasso. Welcome to episode 33 of A Culture of Possibility, a podcast about community arts, cultural democracy, and all related things. My name is Arlene Goldbard, and I'm talking to you from Lamy, New Mexico, in the American Southwest. And I'm going to turn this over to my co-host to introduce himself. Hello, I'm Francois Matarasso. I'm speaking from my home in the Malvin in central France. It's mid-October, and the temperatures are still up in the high 20s, and I can barely see a brown leaf on the tree. So although it's very pleasant, it's also slightly disturbing to see this hot autumn continue. Mm. We're dry, dry, dry here in New Mexico. Well, Francois, our topic today is democracy, and that kind of cracks me up and I think about it because you and I were just talking about how this is our 33rd episode, almost three years of podcast. And we talk about cultural democracy all the time. And Lord knows we've done a lot of chatting about culture. And suddenly we both had this thought, right? We haven't taken the second part of that rubric, democracy, and looked at it with the intensity and um, interest and curiosity that we have for many of the cultural topics. So I'm kind of um, excited to do that now for our own reasons and also because democracy itself seems to be unusually contested at the moment out here in America and around the big world. So maybe we'll have something useful to say to people about it. I was going to start with a little bit of definitional stuff. I'm not going to read you the dictionary, but I went straight to Raymond Williams' book keywords. We'll put that in the uh, links for uh, at the meow.net website. Um, Raymond Williams, for for those of you who haven't had the good fortune to learn about him, was a Welsh writer and also an activist. Um, he he's very much known for starting the Open University after World War II in in the UK, but also for both his novels and his his criticism and his, his essays. My favorite is called "Culture Is Ordinary." If you Google that, you can you can read it a lot of places online. So he has this totally cool book called Keywords, and it's kind of like an alternative glossary. And it's, you know, a paragraph or a few pages of the kinds of words we use all the time. Like his definition of community, I super love because after he goes through all the permutations of community, he says, it seems to be a word for which there is no negative constant, uh, uh, connotation. And so you start thinking about that and you go, yeah, defense community, weapons community, incarceration community, and you realize it covers a multitude of sins. So democracy in, in Raymond's talking about it is a little bit like that. But I actually learned something from rereading his definition because he said that before the 19th century, the usage of it was mostly pejorative. It was like mob rule. And that it kind of got sanitized and put into political programs in the last two, 200 years. Um, he says, um, 
until the 19th century was a strongly unfavorable term. And it is only since um, the late 19th century and the early 20th that a majority of political parties and tendencies have united in declaring their belief in it. This is the most striking historical fact. Aquinas defined democracy as popular power, where the ordinary people by force of numbers governed, oppressed, Aquinas meant, the rich, the whole people was like a tyrant. Um, like today we would use oligarchy or kleptocracy gets said a lot in, in the United States. And he's contrasting in the socialist tradition, democracy has always meant popular power, a, a state in which the majority of the people controlled the, the people's interests and they were paramount. But in the liberal tradition, it's kind of shrunk into this representative government thing where you talk about how people are elected and how issues are debated at the highest levels of government. And there's not much of a role except pulling that lever, you know, every four years or whatever um, for the rest of the people. And, and he makes the point, Williams, that for a lot of these liberal thinkers, or we might say today neoliberal thinkers, that um, democratic rights, which they call like freedom of speech, assembly, you know, the kind of thing that's that's guaranteed in the U.S. Constitution, are, are uh, democracy, and that they really aren't talking about political power and institutions uh, of power very much. So I'll just read uh, one, one tiny paragraph of his, and then I will let you think about it for yourselves. And he's writing this a long time ago. I forgot to look at the copyright on the book, but I, I'm going to say it was in the 50s. Um, no questions are more difficult than those of democracy in any of its central senses. Analysis of variation will not resolve them, though it may sometimes clarify them. To the positive, opposed senses of the socialist and liberal traditions, we have to add in a century, and he's talking about the 20th, which unlike any other finds nearly all political movements claiming to stand for democracy or real democracy, innumerable conscious distortions. Reduction of the concepts of election representation and mandate to deliberate formalities or merely manipulated forms. Reduction of the concept of popular power or government in the popular interest to nominal slogans covering the rule of a bureaucracy or an oligarchy. And shit, it's like 75 years later, right? Yeah, I think keywords came out in the 70s, but but your oh, point okay. stands. Yeah. <laughs> I th and in fact, we should also put in the in the um, in the links. There's a uh, some people have written at least one, if not two, new keywords because the words keep changing. I, I mean, um, it's good to be reminded of how negatively democracy was once seen, but it's also good to remember that who's doing the seeing. Of course, the only people who were writing about democracy um, it, before the 19th century were people with wealth and privilege. So, of course, they didn't like the idea of democracy because it meant rule by anybody except themselves. I think the, the heart of this, though, is the way in which democracy has come to be taken for granted so much and and... I think in our own conversations, that's the case, which is why we haven't thought to talk about it, even though it's half of the word, half of the phrase that makes up, that defines what these podcasts are about. 
in terms of cultural democracy. For me, it has always been the starting point of, of I suppose, of a, of a way of seeing human relations and consequently of seeing community arts, which is that fundamentally it's the only system, and we'll talk about what the system is in a minute, but it's the only system that in principle says that all citizens, or I would prefer to say all human beings, have an equal value, that there is no reason to to give one person more value than another person. The acts that our actions might lead to us being um, recognized as, as being more important. So, you know, I don't know, a nurse might be recognized as uh, having more value through, through his or her work uh, in society than somebody who trades on the stock market to take an obvious example but that's that's about their actions it's not about them as people them as members of society and and that that idea of equality has shaped my whole thinking about community arts that that the only the only way in which i want to to work with people is on a basis of genuine equality now, and I think this is the the heart of what we we need to talk about today. Um, that's an ideal, and of course, there are all kinds of of distortions and uh, inequalities that operate in the world, even starting from our own um, physical capabilities, our own physical beings, because we are animals with bodies, and some of us are stronger and or more uh, able than others, even at that very basic level. So inequalities exist. So then what becomes interesting is how does democracy find ways to rebalance the inequalities that exist and how do we manage it? And I think part of the difficulty that we have is that during the 20th century, when you and I were growing up and having our ideas shaped and then becoming active in as adults in our work, democracy came to be seen as almost as a faith, partly because our, our Western governments were opposing it to communism. And so that often hasn't been talked about very much. But to I, I've spent most of my life living in Britain and I have never voted for anybody who's got elected in my in my life. Um, I, I look at the state of British democracy and I think actually it's it's really not democratic at all. There are all kinds of ways in which it is not democratic. I have very little influence over what happens. So one of the things that I think we need to do, if we do believe in that fundamental ideal that all citizens or 
all people have equal value, then we have to ask what prevents that from being real? And in my terms, one of the reasons that community arts matters, has always mattered to me, is because it's a way to help people express themselves in a democratic space when many of their other ways of doing that have been closed off. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm struck by even if people do define democracy in some significant part as the uh, mechanisms of representative government, you know, that you have the right to vote, that uh, that kind of thing. If you look at the United States political situation, it's pretty appalling how much active investment is going into preventing people from voting. So not only are there have there been a lot of deceitful campaigns in U.S. elections where like, as far as I know, it's Republicans only doing this. And the Republicans will send out a postcard with the wrong polling place or the wrong date for the election, stuff like that. They pass regulations like in Georgia, it's illegal to, you have to stand in line because they foreclose some of the mail-in and drop off, the, the, the drop-off boxes have been mostly taken away. So people who want to vote stand in line for a long time. It's been made illegal to bring them water. Um, Trump packed the Supreme Court with his people. And although they recently made one little decision against a terrible gerrymandering, gerrymandering in Alabama, where they said Alabama actually has to create a second district in which it's possible a Black person will be elected to Congress. All their other decisions have been to ratify the restrictions that have been placed on voting from a time when the Voting Rights Act was was dominant in which the goal was to make it possible and convenient and so forth for everyone who wanted to vote to vote. So we're we're in a big backwards uh, trend in terms of how difficult it is and how discouraging it, it is. And we have a very bad system. Electoral college is not direct democracy. So Trump, who lost by 3 million votes, got to be president because he strategically plotted his campaign to win the correct number of members of the Electoral College. It's uh, the similar lessons are being learned here. So the, uh, in Britain, the, the Conservative government recently required photo ID for voting. But British people don't have identity cards, never have had. So uh, it, they then said, OK, there's a certain number of things you can use, like a driving license or a passport. But um, they allowed older people to use bus passes, but not young people to use bus passes. Just completely discriminatory. And the Electoral Commission has already begun investigating on the last local elections, which is when this came in, the impact of that. So uh, this is all... Um, I mean, what what is depressing is to see how um, how cynical the attempts to to suppress the vote are. But then, you all my uh, throughout my 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 life, the level of participation in elections in Britain and in France has been declining. So actually, I'm not even sure they need to suppress it. They just need to suppress it by. Um, 
running politics in a way that people feel they're not represented, they're not represented, that their their concerns are not uh, taken account of. So they just start giving up on voting because it doesn't change anything. And that phrase, it doesn't change anything, is is one of the most uh, dangerous, I think. It's difficult to change anything, but the one thing you can be very sure of is that not participating in democratic life will not change anything. Yeah, yeah. I'll always remember this one interview that I heard with an exchange student who was going to high school in Washington, D.C., and the interview said, well, what have you learned, you know, from living in the nation's capital and stuff like that? And th- this was before the fall of apartheid in, in South Africa. And this kid said, um, you have everything we're fighting and dying for, and you don't use it. And, is yeah. it, you know, I don't want to valorize the vote as the be-all and end-all. I'm going to go on to say some reasons why I think it's absolutely not. But the fact is, even if you define democracy in that in that skeletal way of mechanisms for you know, like making your opinion known about elections and stuff like that, yes, you're right. In all of our countries, it's being taken away and people are making their own choices not to participate. Or things are happening that beg our imagination, like Cornell West is is running under the Green Party now. And the last time the Green Party ran a presidential candidate. They elected Trump, basically. Um, and uh, RFK Jr., who's just insane, is now running as an independent in the general election. So, you know, there's a lot of people who say they're doing something else who are actually, I mean, you can see the sequence, you can see the consequences. They're actually doing something to ensure that the entrenched interests that have distorted the prior elections will also be likely to hold sway in the one that's coming up. I think we have real problems. I'm, I've been reading a very interesting book by a journalist called Ian Dunt called How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't. Um, and it's a, it's a very level headed. And again, we'll put it in the, in the show links, but it's a very level headed analysis of how politics actually functions. And one of the, one of the shocking things is, I mean, when I say I've never voted for anyone who got elected, it's because we still have, um, for uh, British parliamentary elections, we have a, what they call the first-past-the-post system, which means that you simply, in order to get elected, you just have to get more votes than anyone else. Not a majority of the votes, just more votes than anyone else. So if if there are three, four, five, ten candidates you can get elected with 30% of the vote. You just happen to get one more. But what really shocked me was um, that we are now the almost the only country in the world that still uses this system. Everyone else has gone to some kind, some degree of proportional representation because it's it's not a fair system. And and yet, because of, of the, the faith that people, the politicians uh invest in democracy and persuade citizens to have a belief in actually there's very little um uh the very li- we had a referendum on a on a small uh element of proportional representation under the the coalition government after 2010 and it got rejected so people are are turning down the opportunity to have fairer systems because 
the the politicians who like the first past the post system because it gives them such power when they do win uh, that they persuade electors that this is the best, but it isn't. It's only the best for them. Yeah, yeah. Well, very few inroads for proportional representation in the U.S., although a few localities, you know, have done something like it, or they have something called ranked choice voting, where you give your um, order of preference. And if if your number one doesn't uh, get the majority, then your number two gets your vote. But all of these things are like the tip of an iceberg or the flame of a candle or the 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 last few leaves on the top of a tree, because before voting happens, the thing that you and I, I think, think of as authentic democracy, as 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 real democracy has to take place. And again, in our countries, um, that's practiced um, in little enclaves, in little instances, but in general, not not effectively and not well. So what what I mean about it is, you know, you go into the voting booth and you and you pull the lever or you write your name or you punch the hole and it's a yes or a no or it's this person or that person. But all the dialogue and consideration that would proceed in a informed decision about actually how you wanted to vote, there isn't much room for that. There's a vast expenditure in this country on political advertising. It's amazing. It, yeah, I think that the candidates each spend around six million. I should look that up. I'll provide a link to the accurate figure. Six about six million dollars in the last presidential. No, six million. Way more. I, can it be six billion? Anyway, I'm going to put a link because I I used to know the figure and I don't anymore. Um, but but that's not the dialogue. You know, advertising is an, an attempt to manipulate or persuade you to make you believe something that will have a particular result. It's not deliberative dialogue. It's not an exchange with your fellow human beings who live in your communities about what's important to you and stuff. And to underpin that kind of authentic democratic dialogue, information is necessary. You know, you have to be talking about something beyond, I like him, it's a good, good haircut, I like the way his voice sounds, you know, or beyond propaganda that you've gotten from advertisers, uh, something, some verifiable information that can, if if not form the basis for your opinions, at least in, influence them in some way so that you know what you're talking about. And I think also something that seems entirely lacking in the United States, which is the opportunity to really engage with questions of systems of practical democracy. Um, what are the institutions? What are the methods? What are the ways of being that can actually underpin that kind of dialogue and deliberation that leads to good decisions? I remember when I was a kid in school, it was like each little class elected their president. And, you know, it was totally like who was, I don't know, cute or funny or who everybody liked or I, I have no idea what the criteria were. But I don't remember a single time in school being taught that simple majority rule to appoint someone to rule over you as an alternative, as a way of deciding how you want to structure your society. Maybe it's better now because I went to school a really long time ago. But you know what? I actually don't think so. So we're talking about 
the 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 whole the root system, the humus, the whole uh, ecological apparatus that results in in some kind of democratic decision making, and a, a core idea there is that that process of engagement and democratic dialogue is in itself healthy for a society, healthy for the individual members of the society, makes the world better because we're talking to each other, we're treating each other, as you said in the opening, as equals in in the sight of the of the state and 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 of each other. And it's, it's practice, practice for everything that we have to do in our life that involves not just us, but us and, and, and other people where you have to figure out the best way, the fairest way, the most effective way to do something. And I, I really worry that when we don't get that practice, um, it, it hurts us all the way up. Now, I'll say one more thing about the definition, and then, and then I want to ask you to talk about the, these things too, Francois. But um, in the States, there's a lot of parsing democracy into these Categories of like we have political, social, and economic democracy. Then we we try to jam cultural democracy in there. Then people say environmental democracy. You know, there's just a, a lot of different ways of looking at it. And I'm wondering if that's really necessary sometimes because it feels to me like the same principles and rights and guarantees ought to inform our relationships in every sector of the body politic. And that we should see how that affects the economy. We should see how it affects our political apparatus. We should see how it affects cultural development. But I don't really like the idea of handling them as as separate topics because I think it makes them specializations that keep us uh, in thrall to experts. You know, I know all about economic democracy and you don't. So let's not talk about economics together. Um, the people that we have featured on this podcast are believers in cultural democracy and to the best of their ability they attempt to practice it which if you look back at their work almost all of them are involved somehow in co-creating dialogue about things that matter to people that dialogue might be in you know words it might be in the form of theater it might be in the form of creating imagery all the other art practices can be used in 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 achieving this kind of dialogue. Um, but there's a, a lot of us kind of on the margins, right? Trying to make up for what's not there in the center. I think we've, we've that's really important. And that's the heart of, of why I believe in cultural democracy or why I've invested my, my life and work in that. Um, pointing out the problems with the democratic system um it's it's quite easy to do and in the end it's it's not very productive quite a long time ago i i developed this phrase that i called the parliament of dreams which i named one of my websites and i wrote an essay on it what i meant by that was there is a in democracies, there is a parliament, and it's it enacts laws, and often it fails and doesn't represent people well. For me, the 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 metaphor of the Parliament of Dreams was our cultural life. It's the place where we actually 
as societies where we negotiate our values, where we talk about our beliefs. We say, this matters to me. This is what I care about. This this story or this experience is wrong or it's right or it's um, complicated or I don't understand it. But through all of our cultural production, our creative production, through stories, through plays, through film, through music, through dance, through painting, through all of the, the that we are, um, we are working out who we are as a, as a community, as a society, as a, as a species. And that is affecting how we then act. Now, the problem has always seemed to me to be that some people are, have much better access to that parliament of dreams than others. So there are, and you can see that. I mean, one big group, it's always seemed to me, um, there's a big social group that is all but invisible, which is teenagers. You know, when do you hear the voice of teenagers in our cultural life? Almost never. They're spoken about. They are represented by others, but they're written about and represented by adults. How do we know what what teenagers think, what they care about? They know because they do now have, because of the technological revolution, they do now have ways to talk to each other and to share in, in that have grown greatly uh, in the last 50 and the last 20 years. So for me, the point of community arts was always about trying to provide new doorways into that parliament, into that kind of lived democratic life where you are expressing your values and sharing them in a public space with others to provide new doorways into that public life for other people for people who for, who are excluded from it for a whole variety of ways um and that that is why i think community art contributes to democratic life and to social justice by enabling people I've never liked the phrase giving people a voice. People have a voice. What they don't have always is the means to be heard and the, and the, the resources to amplify that voice, the platform on which to stand to be seen when they, they have that voice. That seems to me to be the ultimate, um, the ultimate kind of way in which art and culture become lived democracy. But I have to say, and I'll, I'll, I'll stop here and come back to this later, but I have to say the, the internet revolution, which has put the means of cultural production into the hands of everyone, or almost everyone, in ways that I think were only dreamed of by community artists in the 1960s and 70s, it has also uh, been open to exploitation and manipulation and to deeply anti-democratic forces. And so for me, having lived and worked through that time, to see the, the, the opening up of that democratic space in ways that I, I could have not imagined 30 years ago, 
that's extraordinary and fantastic. But then I see it being controlled by rich and powerful men and dangerous um, uh, uh, autocrats and demagogues and manipulated to disseminate deceit and lies. Um, uh, and that is, is very frightening. So I'm in, in a, in a sense, I'm in a place where, you know, you have to say that old phrase, be careful what you wish for, because we, we have this now, uh, enormous freedom to create and distribute and publish that we didn't have before. But some very bad people have that same freedom and they have a lot of power and resources to manipulate it yeah and when i mean the blue sky you know predictions for the internet and the world wide web i mean that was all very inspiring and a lot of it came true you know somewhere out there you can find the kinds of platforms for communication and expression that um that uh, we dreamt of, but it continues to be true that the primary use of of that digital world is commerce. And unless it's changed um, since the last time I looked at it, the primary commerce is in pornography. So the 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 finer sides of human nature perhaps have not been the ones that dominated. But it's out there in the mess somehow, right? And and the the question is how how to give it visibility. I think. I mean, I think it's also true that um, both both those technological forms, but just all, even the you know the old fashioned forms of making theater, making making dance, making visual images and stuff, have been so critical for people who live in authoritarian states, who for whom you know the vote is a pure, uh, a pure formality. Um, the people who don't have uh, the right to free speech in the way that we're talking about in in these in countries like the UK and uh, and the US, no matter how it might be uh, limited more than than it was in the past. You and I have talked about um, Václav Havel's power of the powerless before on on this podcast, and I, I love the way he talks in that essay about people who don't think they're making political action; they're making music. But the act of making music as free people in the space of creation is perceived as a threat by the state, um, beside, precisely because it sort of uh, illuminates a moment of potential freedom in the society that everybody could, could take advantage of. So I think it's really also important for us to understand how these cultural um, modes of communication and creativity uh, have have power always, you know, far beyond what's conventionally understood and, and far beyond how they're conventionally uh, disregarded, I guess, or dismissed as, you know, negligible, just having fun, that kind of thing. In fact, I think the fun part, the pleasure part is really critical to the democratic part. I always say that community arts are, it's a low threshold practice. 
because people are going to come because they enjoy doing something. They're going to learn how to dance. They're going to make a mural together. They're going to, you know, dip their toe in in some water. That sounds like a nice way to spend the afternoon to them. And what do you know, once they've dipped their toe in, they're in the pond of political participation. So I, I think that's really important to note too. And I think I'm, I remain hopeful about the work that we do. I, just listening to you, you speak, I, I think that some of what we do is simply to keep spaces open for alternative possibilities to happen, for alternative voices to be heard. And the, I, I was reminded, I'm, um, 15 or more years ago, I met um, a really nice uh, couple who ran a, a theatre company in the Netherlands called Stut. And they they made plays with communities uh, that, that were then performed by the members of those communities about their lives. And they told me they, they had grown up in an area of mining and stut actually means a pit prop in Dutch. And that's what they thought the the um the theatre company was doing. It was being a pit prop. It was relieving the pressure from above on the people they were they it was taking the strain. And and I've loved that metaphor. I think that that, you know, a lot of what we do is and I I've seen this, I've I've spent time this year in in several countries several authoritarian countries in latin america which i i won't name but because i've met artists there who are doing exactly that work of keeping keeping space open keeping the possibility that yes you can meet and make theater and make music and say what you want to say even if you have to say it in the um in the deniable versions that theater and music allow you you know say no i'm, I'm not criticizing the government i'm just <laughs> making this play about a ridiculous fat man who's eating all the cake right. <laughs> you know um uh it's it's um i i think that remains valid and important and and indeed it's it's even more important as as our democratic um processes are coming increasingly under threat both from um uh media manipulation and from sadly our our supposed democratic government sometimes yeah now when you and i were talking about uh, this topic you made an interesting point about uh, other sectors that aren't necessarily, let's say they're not the arts. I don't. I, I can't say they're not cultural and they're not political, but in which there's this sort of normative forms of democratic organizing that have grown up. And you mentioned sports, and which I think is an interesting analogy. I think again, one of the the mistakes we make is we think that democracy means politics. I I think democracy means the way we live and in most of our societies an enormous amount of of work and value is work is being done and value is being produced by people 
simply doing the things that they choose to do, whether it's it's faith groups, it's environmental groups, it's sports clubs, it's all kinds of, of grassroots social activism. And the model for that is absolutely democratic. It goes back to that principle of saying, if you're a member of, of the football club or you're a member of the running club or you're a member of the, the, the park committee or whoever, whatever this, this group is, there's, there's a normative expectation that all members are equal, all members have a voice, all, everyone can be heard. And, you know, there'll be, there'll be a managing committee or whatever. Sometimes it's not so formal. Sometimes it's more formal and people will work together. And actually, that's what I think real democratic life is. And that's what, what gives meaning to what then happens up above. Uh, in parliaments and so on, and that's that's really what I mean by the by the, the the parliament of dreams. We 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 are working together on the things that matter to us, the things that we we dream about, the things that we care about, and the way in which we work is almost without fail democratic in its spirit. It's egalitarian and respectful of everyone, um, and I think community organizations would very quickly shrivel away if anybody tried to run them in a way that that was not respectful yeah true very true the, um let's loop back to the to cultural democracy as a phrase for a minute because as we're talking i'm thinking you know that cultural democracy gets mentioned a lot on the meow.net podcast um, it's kind of what brought us together and uh, the the four of us who are hosts, you, you and me, but also Sophie, Hope and uh, Owen Kelly have written ex- extensively about it. And there's things that we kind of tend to say, you know, by the by, as we're having these chats, like there's a lot of definitions of it and no one can really agree on it. Which always irritates me so much because it makes it sound like it's like so arcane and complicated and you can't grasp it. And I think, you know, the basics are, are graspable. But I think the same thing that Raymond Williams, I quoted Raymond Williams was saying at the beginning that obtains in the whole sphere of democracy um, is the phenomenon that we're seeing in the people's relationship to this idea of cultural democracy, which kind of has waxed and waned over the last 100 years, uh, which is that there's a tendency to define it in the narrow way of mechanisms and instrumentalities to produce a certain outcome. And so, you know, some of the folks who describe themselves as campaigning for cultural democracy, they just want a, like a fairer distribution of arts council funding or something like that. That's the, the spine of, of what they're talking about. And you go all the way to the other end, definitionally. And when you and I talk about it, I think we mean um, what you just said about a way of being that is not something future that you bring about, but a way of being that that can be practiced now. And, you know, my bias is practiced now in a prefigurative way. If, that is, if, if we treat um, as much as possible the things that are in our control as if they were culturally democratic organizations, institutions, projects, whatever, that can spread. And, and that can aggregate into, a, you know, possibly 
one day after I'm dead, a larger social system in, in, in which that's the, the, um, the truth for everybody. And I think we're always fighting against the people who do the narrow definitional thing because it makes it a special interest, right? When it's about like yeah. Arts Council funding or NEA funding or something, it's like only the, the few people who care about that are really in the dialogue and have a dog in the race, you know? And if it's about the entire culture and how we understand ourselves in it and connect with each other in it and relate to it and nurture it and and uh, intervene in it somehow, then everybody has a dog in the race. Of course. I mean, it, it's always seemed to me to be kind of self-evident. It's intrinsic to the idea of, of democracy that everybody can participate. If, as you say, everyone has a dog in the race and everybody knows how to do it. It isn't complicated. You know, people know how to how to run a voluntary organization or a sports club without thinking about it. It's about how we behave. And I, you use the, the word prefigure, um, and I get that completely. But I actually think it's even simpler than that. It's It's to do with our habits of behavior. The more we behave respectfully and democratically together to achieve, to work out what it is we want and to, to work towards that, the, the more natural it becomes for us to do that and the harder it, it is for other people to intervene and, and break up that, that habit of, of working in a spirit of, of equality and mutual respect, which, and it's, it is always it is always a process. I've often said, you know, life is only process. Only death is the end. It's if we we're just doing it all the time. And democracy isn't a thing you can get to that you say, okay, we've now got democracy. Um, it, all you can do is enact democracy. Like you can enact love. You can enact creation. You can enact all the things that matter in life you do them you don't you're not working towards them and there isn't a state where somehow they're achieved and okay we we can sit back now and enjoy our democracy yeah and i i would just add you know i completely agreement with what you're saying and i would just add to that that i think all of those things you could say you know about love as much as and beauty as much as democracy they're always in a process of becoming they're never fulfilled yeah. But understanding that they're always in a process of becoming creates an imperative where whether by refusing to participate or putting ourselves forward, we have a role in that becoming. And in this time in which we live, it's not only always in the process of becoming, it's always fighting against forces that don't want it to become. And, the, and that is also our democratic choice. We choose whether to behave in this way or that. We choose whether to add to that process of becoming or whether, on the contrary, we decide to, to try and obstruct it. So, And we have responsibility for that. And that's why, for me, there's such an important distinction between our value as human beings and the value of our actions. Our choices are not all the same. They're not all worth the same. And choosing to enact and to work for and with democratic life and a creative life and a respectful life of other human beings and indeed 
of all life on the planet, then that seems to me to be, I'm always going to choose that choice, say that's a better choice than the reverse. Absolutely. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) This is not one of those chapters in which we disagreed on things. Well, we want to thank our listeners for listening to our thoughts on democracy. And we'd kind of like to hear what you have to say, too. So if you feel like it, um, let us know. You can uh, we'll we'll put an email address in the um, in the links at meow.net. And uh, meanwhile, in an abandoned warehouse.net. So M-I-A-A-W.net. And and let us know. what you think about democracy. I'd I'd be really curious. Thanks, Arlene. It's been a really enjoyable conversation. It's good to to step back a bit from arts and culture sometimes to talk about this. Yeah. Thank you, Francois. Now that you've heard the podcast, you can go to the website to find out more details, including references and links. The website's at meow.net. That's M-I-A-A-W dot net. See you there.